This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome back to Mini Med School in Geriatrics, and I'm very pleased this evening to be welcoming my colleague, Candace Kim. She's fairly new to our division, having recently moved from Boston, um, where she, I'll, I'll let her talk about her work experience, but where she worked in acute care and also long-term care, working with older patients. And here she works on our acute care for elders unit in the hospital. So she's a tremendous clinician to be talking to us tonight about navigating the hospital and care transitions. So thanks so much for your attention, and as always, we look forward to your questions. So I'm uh, really excited to be participating in the mini-med school course, and thank you everyone for coming tonight. Um, As Dr. Chodos mentioned, I'm relatively new to UCSF, having moved here from Metro Boston. I completed a family medicine residency at the University of Massachusetts in 2005, and worked in hospital medicine for the following 10 years. In 2013, I decided to pursue a clinical geriatric medicine fellowship. After my fellowship, I worked in a post-acute care unit, or rehab, and within the last year, I've transitioned back into the hospital as a geriatric specialist at UCSF Parnassus. That's a little summary about myself and my perspective on care transitions, having worked in a few different areas of medicine. For those of you who haven't heard very much about care transitions, hopefully by the end of this session, you'll know more about it. So these are my objectives for tonight. I'll be highlighting some of the ways that hospital care has changed over time, and specifically focusing on geriatric care in the hospital. Then we'll use a case scenario to go through some of the different phases of care in the healthcare system, from home to the emergency department and through the hospitalization. Finally, we'll talk about some of the next steps um, that happen after a hospital stay and how to prepare for them. So to set the stage, I'm going to start by saying that hospital care has changed a lot over the past several decades, and it continues to evolve rapidly. We could spend a whole hour just talking about how things have changed, but I wanted to highlight a couple of big changes that are particularly notable. For one, over the past 50 to 60 years with the enactment of Medicare and more more recently the Affordable Care Act, the healthcare system has made it priority to offer coverage to as many people as possible. This means that the majority of people over the age of 65 have healthcare benefits and access to care. Another major change is that hospitals have moved away from a place where only the most sick are admitted and they're admitted for a prolonged period of time to a place where the focus is on rapid diagnosis, treatment, and moving out of the hospital. The graph in the lower left shows a nearly 25% decrease in hospital length of stay over the 15-year period. The last point I wanted to make is that the hospital is a place mostly occupied by the very young and those over 65 years old. The graph on the right demonstrates that adults over over the age of 85 have the largest number of hospitalizations. Having worked in the hospital, I would also have to say that it's extremely common for many of the patients I see to be in this age range. The remainder of my talk will be exclusively focused on issues relating to people over 65. 
So what are some of the reasons why people end up needing to go to the hospital? There are dozens of reasons, and one common reason why people end up in the emergency department is because their primary care physician or another physician has has instructed them after hearing about their new concerning medical event. Frequently, it's a family member who insists on having you go to the hospital. I've listed just a few of the more common reasons why people end up coming to the hospital, but know that there are many, many more reasons than this. Okay, so for those of you who are still not clear about when to come to the emergency room, and for those who always manage to find a reason not to go, I wanted to put a few scenarios up to illustrate some reasonable judgment. The first scenario illustrates someone with slow, progressive symptoms for over a year and an upcoming outpatient appointment. In this situation, it may be worthwhile to find a sooner appointment, but a one-time visit to the emergency room is unlikely going to help overall. In the second scenario, symptoms are worsening over a few days with breathing problems, fever, and confusion. This is a case where intervening quickly and aggressively might help this person out a lot. In the third scenario, this person develops stroke-like symptoms but decides to go to, decides to, go to bed instead of seeking medical attention. In this instance, if it turns out to, that they're having a stroke and wait until the next day to be evaluated, they may miss out on the best possible treatment, and they could have even a more severe stroke and prolong their recovery. So given what we know about the first scenario, this is probably someone who wouldn't need to go to the emergency room unless their symptoms intensified or changed substantially. We'll follow the second scenario throughout the rest of the talk. And scenario three is an example of someone who would have benefited from going to the emergency room earlier when they first developed symptoms. So before we move on to the case scenario, just a quick word on care transitions. A care transition is a point in time where an individual moves from one form of health care to another. For example, going from home to the hospital involves a care transition. Similarly, leaving the hospital and going to rehab or back home is another care transition. I'm going to focus on how the care team and overall goals change throughout each of these care transitions, and I'll highlight some of the challenges that arise in the transition process. With that in mind, let's follow the experience of Mr. Smith. He's a 79-year-old man with high blood pressure, prior stroke in 2013 and arthritis, who was seen in his primary care physician's office for fever to 103 and cough for three days. In terms of his relevant background, he lives with his wife, he's had a previous smoking history, and he's moderately active but depends on his adult son for transportation. He made a same-day urgent clinic visit with his primary care physician after his family insisted that he didn't seem well. In the office, he looks ill and fatigued. His lungs sound congested, and he's short of breath. His wife provides the doctor with most of the history and notes that he's been confused and not eating. He's not drinking, and he's not sleeping well. With a concern for pneumonia... Mr. Smith's primary care doctor recommends that he goes to the emergency department. So let's take a moment to talk about the emergency department. 
I've talked to a lot of patients and families that have very strong perceptions about the positive and the negative experiences they've had in the emergency department, and I'd like to address just a few of them with you briefly today. When talking about the emergency department, one of the first concerns people bring up to me is the wait time. It's exhausting to wait for hours in an emergency in the emergency department waiting area or the hallway. It seems counterintuitive to go to a place like this only uh, to be waiting um, hour after hour. Unfortunately, I don't have a perfect answer that solves the issue of wait times in the emergency department. However, I would highlight that there are a lot of things happening behind the scenes that may not be too obvious. For one, the emergency department has an elaborate triage system with the goal of seeing everyone in a timely manner, but also prioritizing the most medically critical people first. Second, there are a number of steps to an emergency department evaluation as outlined in this flowchart. Sometimes coordinating everything and coming up with a care plan takes longer than you'd expect. And thirdly, the typical emergency department sees a huge number of people with a wide range of illness, which is a logical, which is its logistical and resource intense uh, challenge. The bar graph shows an average number of patients throughout the day at a single emergency department in 45 minutes increments. As you could see from the hours 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., there's a steady flow of new people coming through. One big question that people come up in the emergency department is related to advanced directives. Without specifying otherwise, any individual who comes into the emergency department will receive the maximal medical intervention. Often, especially as people get older, they may choose to limit the types of medical intervention they would want to have done or focus on quality of life and symptom management rather than testing and treatment. It is also important for those of us in the healthcare system to remember that the people we care for are interested in having discussions about their advanced directives. This survey showed that 85% of people felt that doctors should discuss end-of-life care, but that these conversations were only happening 15 to 25% of the time. The survey was done in Massachusetts, and I'm curious to see among this group tonight how many of you have had end-of-life care discussions with your doctor. Yeah, very few. Um, Well, the emergency department is not the place to start talking about the goals of care, but it is a really important topic. And for those of you who have not had a conversation about end-of-life care, I do encourage you to bring it up with your primary care physician and your family members. Just one more detail about the emergency department that ties into the triage discussion as well as the importance of advanced directives. In the case of a heart attack, stroke symptoms, or trauma. They're dedicated systems of care to expedite the triage process and provide specific, aggressive medical treatments, such as going to to a cardiac catheterization uh, to have a coronary artery opened up, or going for a procedure to retrieve a blood clot causing a stroke. In the case of 
surgery, a person's individual wishes and ability to undergo anesthesia and surgery factor into the decision as whether or not to have a procedure. In some instances, having surgery is beneficial and appropriate, but in other instances, it may be more reasonable not to have surgery. Every situation is different, but especially with time-sensitive problems like these, it's important to have clarity about an individual's wishes for medical care and who will act as their surrogate medical decision-maker. So let's catch up with Mr. Smith again. He's arrived in the emergency department from his primary care physician's office. In the emergency department, Mr. Smith was seen by the triage nurse. He had his vital signs checked, and the team asked to review his medications. He had some blood work done, a chest X-ray, and an electrocardiogram. The emergency department physician led the team in the emergency department and informed Mr. Smith and his family that based on the symptoms and test results, he likely had a pneumonia and he needed to stay in the hospital for IV antibiotics. The team spoke with Mr. Smith and his family about his advanced directives. He had previously completed a written durable power of attorney designating his wife as his surrogate decision maker. It was helpful that Mr. Smith had a written statement designating his wife as medical decision maker since he was confused, and at the time of his admission to the hospital, he wasn't able to fully understand what was happening and why. So it can be confusing and sometimes even intimidating to try and figure out who all the people are in the hospital and what their roles are on the team. It is always good to ask if someone doesn't introduce themselves and explain why they're there and to make use of communication boards that are in many hospital rooms. These are the elements of a typical care team. There may be one to five or more members of the primary or admitting service with a supervising or attending physician in charge. Depending on the problem, one or more teams of consulting doctors may also be involved. There will be a primary nurse and sometimes specialized nurses, such as IV therapy, nursing students that you'll also meet in the hospital. Medical assistants work with nurses and often in paired teams. A number of therapists, physical therapy, occupational therapy, Speech therapy or nutrition may be called in to do an evaluation. Wound care nurses are focused on prevention and treatment of skin-related issues in the hospital. And there's case management who help to coordinate the discharge planning and other logistical aspects. This large, personalized care team has a number of goals in mind for anyone they're seeing in the hospital. I've listed just a few. Their goals are to perform a medical evaluation and offer a plan for diagnosis and treatment. Beyond that, there's also a focus on being efficient and safe. It's better for patients and better for the healthcare system to make the length of stay in the hospital as short as possible. Similarly, it's best for everyone to avoid hospital-associated complications and for the patient and family to have an excellent experience. 
And finally, the care team makes every effort to address problems as much as, pro- as possible on the first visit to avoid preventable visits back to the hospital or back to the emergency department. Over the years, I've heard some people express skepticism about the actual goals of the medical team, but I want to assure everyone that the team's goal is not to use anyone as a medical experiment, keep you as long as possible, do as many tests as possible, do things that are better off done as an, um, outside of the hospital, or to complete a rehabilitation program in the hospital. So Mr. Smith was admitted to the hospital because of his cough, fevers, and abnormal chest x-ray. In the emergency department, he met the internal medicine attending doctor who was responsible for his admission to the hospital, commonly known as a hospitalist. The hospitalist asked him a few questions and explained the process of being admitted to the hospital. He also met the resident doctor and medical student on his primary team. Bless you. The team wrote orders to continue IV antibiotics that were started by the emergency department. Mr. Smith continued to experience confusion and restlessness. The following day, he was assisted out of bed by physical and occupational therapy, and the team gave instructions to the nurse and medical assistants to minimize Mr. Smith's night time sleep, his nighttime sleep interruptions, as a way to address the confusion he was having. Mr. Smith's wife was called by the case manager who wanted to talk to her about a safe discharge plan, even though Mr. Smith wasn't quite ready to leave the hospital yet. So now that we've followed our patient into the hospital, I want to take a minute to ask you a big picture question. In your experience, are hospitals elderly friendly? Or I guess for, uh, for those of you who prefer a different word, is a hospital friendly to those in their 70s and above? Yes. What do you think? Great. Depends on the hospital. Interesting. So yes and no. We'll talk over the next few slides about how hospitals are and are not friendly for older people. First, the downside. There are a number of reasons that the hospital is a different place for anyone, a difficult place for anyone, but particularly older adults. Their blood tests, continuous pain, bed alarms, they get their food taken away, they have an active infection, and the list goes on. As you can appreciate, there are several common stressors that contribute to a less-than-friendly hospital environment, which is what you had mentioned. So what can hospitals do to minimize or avoid some of these stressors? I'm going to highlight a few of the interventions that have been put in place at UCSF to improve the hospital experience and improve medical outcomes. They fall under three main areas. The ACE unit, or the acute care for the elderly, which is where I spend a lot of my time at work. And we'll talk, and we'll talk more about that on the next slide. Second is hospital-wide protocols are, are put into place and multidisciplinary care planning 
that is sensitive to the specific needs of the geriatric population. So there's a national trend toward the creation of specialized units designed for the care of the elderly, known as ACE units. The ACE unit at Parnassus opened within the past year and consists of a whole team of doctors, including geriatricians, nurses, therapists, and staff focused on specialized care for older patients. Unlike traditional units, the ACE unit is more focused on maintaining independence as much as possible and preparing for those care transitions. One of the more common problems we encounter in the hospital, both on the ACE unit and in other areas, is delirium. Delirium is a state of disorientation or confusion that is more likely to happen under physical stress or when a common routine is disrupted. The hospital has instituted specific protocols to detect delirium with a goal to prevent or minimize its effects. Delirium is often upsetting to individuals and families, and it's also associated with worse medical outcomes, specifically longer lengths of stay, higher mortality, and a higher rate of developing cognitive difficulties in the future. There have been a number of studies looking at delirium detection and prevention. And we're still learning how to most effectively address this extremely common problem in the hospital. The other big care transition that we have to talk about is the transition out of the hospital. Although it would be great for everyone to be back to their normal selves when they leave, the reality is that at the time of hospital discharge, some people will not have the exact diagnosis, and there may be tests pending or a need for additional follow-up. Rather than feeling stronger, sometimes people feel weaker, still less mentally clear and unable to to get back to their usual selves, um, to their usual activities. These symptoms do not mean that a person is not ready to leave the hospital, but it may mean that a stay in a post-acute care facility, such as a rehab center, will be an important next step. In Mr. Smith's case, he stayed in the hospital for five days, and his cough and confusion improved, but did not completely resolve by the time of hospital discharge. He was eating, but had a poor appetite, and he lost some weight. He was evaluated by therapists who recommended an inpatient rehab facility to optimize his strength and endurance. Mr. Smith preferred to go straight home, and his family felt confused about whether he should go home or to a rehab facility. He never had to go to rehab in the past. Members of the team explained why Mr. Smith would benefit from a stay at a rehabilitation facility and recover, recover faster, and the case manager provided a list of facilities to Mr. Smith and his f- family. The team provided a printed summary of Mr. Smith's hospitalization and a list of medications to him and to the facility that would be assuming his care. He was transported by chair van to the rehab facility. So there are a number of options for rehab after hospitalization, depending on the medical and nursing needs for a given individual. I've listed the top four here in order of intensity. Each level of post-hospital care has specific types and frequencies of therapy. The medical 
uh, sorry, the medical and therapy evaluations during the hospital stay are the main ways that the team decides which type of rehab is most appropriate. Hospice care is designed for symptom-focused management of pain and discomfort for those who have a medical condition that is life-limiting. On the first day at the skilled nursing facility, Mr. Smith met his physical therapist, occupational therapist, and attending physician. He worked with therapy each day and slowly began to feel more sure on his feet and more relaxed with his breathing. A member of the medical team saw him every few days and was available if he had problems. He completed his course of antibiotics, got all of his other medications regularly, and had occasional blood work, but this was noticeably less often than in the hospital. A case manager at the rehab center was assigned to Mr. Smith's care. She reviewed the reports of his progress at rehab and worked with the Smith worked with the Smith family to coordinate delivery of the medical equipment Mr. Smith would need at home. When he was nearly ready to leave the facility, the case manager arranged for a visiting nurse and home physical therapist to visit Mr. Smith at his home. The transition home went smoothly, and Mr. Smith and his family were able to ask a lot of questions and have plans in place before they left the rehab facility. He was no longer confused, he was breathing better, and he was able to walk short distances with assistance. The visiting nurse came the day after he returned home, familiarized herself with his situation, and reviewed his medications with him and his wife. Home physical therapy continued to visit and work on strengthening and balance with Mr. Smith for 30-minute sessions three times a week. In summary, I wanted to outline a few key points. Most large hospitals have targeted resources to help older adults with severe acute illness. There are a lot of potential stressors that make hospitalization difficult, but hospitals also have specialized services and care teams for the elderly. Advanced care planning helps to ensure that your specific wishes are honored and that your surrogate decision maker will know how to make good decisions on your behalf. There's a system to find the best options for post-hospital care. Knowing about the options and how the system works will help you prepare to navigate the hospital and care transitions more effectively. I'm going to open it up for any questions. Um, So the question is, how does a hospital evaluate who is elderly? So that's a a great question. Um, By definition, it's typically anyone older than the age of 65. Um, but it could also include people who are younger but very sick and younger who are closer to the age of 65 but not yet at that mark yes I think that's a great idea Um, I think more and more hospitals are uh, involving geriatric specialists uh, to see patients Um, it's almost become an automatic uh, visit by a geriatrician for a lot of orthopedic patients here, older than the age of 65, and the movement is definitely growing towards having geriatric specialists in the hospital. And I wouldn't be surprised in 10 years, 5, 10 years, that 
there'll be more of a geriatric presence because the population is growing so much. The ACE unit, uh, the acute care for the elderly units are more common now, commonly seen in the hospitals than they were 10 years ago. Sure, yes. So the the question highlights uh, the fact that the primary care physician was the uh, person who uh, referred the patient to the emergency department and then was not mentioned again um, on subsequent uh, slides or visits um, that Mr. Smith had uh, moving through the care transitions. Um, So that's an excellent point. Um, The primary care physician is often, it's almost required mandatory for the primary care team to contact the primary care physician to let them know where their patient is being discharged to. Um, Every primary care physician, if you have one, gets a copy of the discharge summary. Um, And on most occasions, they are called for any specific questions or changes in medications um, that happen along the way. So they are contacted quite frequently. A very important piece. All right, so the question uh, is that there is a hospital that's being built, uh, advertising, uh, mainly emphasizing on the fact that they have all single rooms. Is it possible to have that here? Um, Certainly it's a request that you can make to have a private room. Not all the rooms at Parnassus are single. A lot of them are double. Um, Oftentimes having a roommate, too, uh, is occasionally helpful for somebody who um, needs to have uh, a little bit of activity or is used to having some activity in the room. Um, so keeping a person in a private room by themselves all the time is not always the best case scenario. So, But I can understand the emphasis on why a private room would be a benefit. Yes, excellent question. So um, does Medicare dictate the rules for care, and does Medicare is Medicare involved for rules uh, in patients under the age of 65? Is that right? Well, I see. Does the hospital follow those rules? I see. Um, yes. The question is yes and yes. So Medicare does dictate. Medicare has rules and regulations. Um, that we need to follow and uh, that go through policy, uh, healthcare policy, and um, and do they dictate uh, how long a patient is going to be here? The physician, the physical therapist, the care team, the entire care team will dictate that, but there are guidelines and criteria of certain criteria of that they need to follow um, if there's active medical interventions being done in the hospital Medicare does list a whole bunch of reasons why patients should be in the hospital and not left here for weeks and weeks without anything being done so yes and and Medicare sets the foundation for care in the hospital so the hospital doesn't necessarily follow Medicare's rules um, for everyone, 
but it is a foundation for care for the whole patient population in the hospital. Does that answer your question? Yes. There are, yes, so um, the comment was focused around sleep and how important it is uh, in the hospital, even just for recovery uh, for, from any illness, that sleep is important, and is there anything being done in the hospital for that? Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are sleep protocols um, where, we, where nursing is advised to, and, and blood draws, phlebotomy are all ad- advised to minimize the amount of sleep disruptions. So blood draws will be done at 9 instead of at 4 in the morning. Um, vital signs will be done uh, while the person is awake and not woken up in the middle of the night to check. There are certain illnesses, um, and that's the re- main reason why they're in the hospital, why people will need to be woken up in the middle of the night, um, why the vital signs need to be done every two hours because they're so sick and they would need to be woken up from their sleep in those certain cases. Um, But apart from those critical cases where they're very sick and need to be monitored closely, um, there is a movement towards um, less sleep disruption in the hospital. It should be changing. Um, Again, I I think that is more of a geriatric-focused care That's, that's true. Everyone does need to sleep. The number one priority in the hospital is treatment of their illness um, and doing everything possible in an efficient way to treat them sooner rather than later and to get them home or out of the hospital soon. To delay treatment for sleep is not something that's common in the hospital Um, but I can see your balance in terms of how sleep will help with recovery, waking somebody up Um, but it is something that is being uh, done in the hospital in terms of trying to promote sleep rather than disruption Um, the question is if something were to go wrong in the hospital at what point would that happen, and how can we best avoid it? Is that right? Not just in the hospital, but in care transitions. I see. Um, You're right. This is a very ideal scenario that I've painted here. Um, There are multiple areas in the care transitions at each step that that could be less optimal. Uh, For example, communication um, between physician to physician, between services. If your care team only consists of one physician, um, if you don't have physical therapy early on, um, if you don't have family members nearby um, or a close friend, to help advocate for the patient. Um, There are multiple scenarios. Um, That's why we have courses like this, where we're here to help 
educate and guide you through the best and for the best outcome. Absolutely. So the question is, who decides which skilled nursing facility uh, you would go to um, and how, how is the whole process managed from hospital to a skilled nursing facility? Um, so initially, the recommendation is co- always comes from therapy, from physical therapists or an occupational therapist who then who walk, will walk you around and find that you're not safe to go home immediately. Um, and then the case manager will get that recommendation from the physical therapist, and the case manage, ma- manager will approach the patient and the and or the family with a list of skilled nursing facilities that they want, they would prefer them to go to. Usually, families or patients choose a facility that's close to home, so that family can easily come and visit. Um, but it's it's purely up to the patient, uh, to you or to the family, as to which place you would want them to go to. Um, the doctor or the nursing or the other staff can re- make their recommendations if you ask, um, but you're definitely not obliged to go to any specific one. Great question. So um, this... <laughs> so the... This young gentleman mentioned that 50 years ago he was in the hospital and uh, for an elective surgery um, received a bill after five days for $700 and was um, asking to see if I could give an estimate on what a hospital bill would be these days for five days of hospitalization. So for so I know there, there are different types of bills that the hospital puts out. There's a hospital bill and then there's a physician's bill. A payment to the doctor and a payment to the hospital. And the hospital bill typically for a straightforward hospitalization is about three to five thousand dollars a day, and that does not include like high expense imaging like a PET scan or an MRI uh, or additional um, complex testing. Or sur- surgeries, so the hospital itself would bill f- between three to five thousand dollars a day. Absolutely. So uh, the question was whether there is a program or um, a service where the hospital will go out to the home and provide care from home, and there absolutely are um, programs that do that. Uh, there, UCSF. Uh, Geriatrics actually has a care at home program where um, there are certain qualifications to be part of that program, mainly that you would need to be homebound, so somebody who doesn't go out at all or can't drive um, and can't go to office visits. Uh, But there would be a physician that would come and visit, blood work, x-rays, all of that would come to the house and care for you at home. Absolutely. And then there are other programs as well, like Unlock or PACE programs, um, not related to UCSF, where they have providers, nurse practitioners, physicians that will come out to the home, physical therapists as well. Excellent question. Um, All these questions are great. So uh, the question was focused around uh, patient uh, advocating for your family member or your loved one and how best to do it. 
I think everybody has their own opinion on the best way to advocate my, in my experience and what I know about hospitals, not just here, but in several different hospitals I've worked at, that the more you're present and the more you ask questions, the better it is. Um, if you're a doctor or, or provider that's taking care of your loved one, your family, or your friend knows that you're asking questions, you want to know all the details, you should let them know. And they should provide that for you. Um, as long as there's you know agreement with your with your loved one or your friend who agrees that you will get all the information, um, the best ways to approach them you can even call you don't have to be in the same room uh, or see them in person. You could call the nurses station um, and have them paged to your phone number um, and the more present you are, the more. I guess vocal you are in terms of asking what's going on. I want to know more. Are there any new medications? Um, what's the medical plan for today? Um, I think is great. I definitely admire people who do that because it takes a lot of work and effort on their end. Absolutely. Um, so the uh, question was focused around uh, case management and what their background is and how to best support someone who needs to make decisions uh, when they uh, have a lot of other stressors going on, meeting new people, new faces. Um, case managers are, almost all of them, are have an RN, they have a nursing degree. Um, so they are not physicians, um, but they are familiar with your medical diagnosis, um, and the hospital course. Um, mainly, they get the information from the physical therapist and make recommendations really based on, lo on locality, where you want to go. How do you get the information on which rehab is the best place to go to? It's difficult to do that personally. It's difficult to do that while you're in the hospital. Some people have friends or family who are able to go and visit, and you don't need to make a decision right away. That's why the case managers tend to talk about these a few days before discharge. There's also a STAR system online on the Internet. If, if you or family member have access to the Internet, you can look up these. They'll give you a list of all these skilled nursing facilities in terms of a five-star listing, a four-star listing, and they're all sort of graded on a nursing home scale. Yeah. I see. Um, so the question uh, involves um, sort of the overwhelming sort of anxiety and, and information uh, upon entering the hospital and... Um, what type of uh, interventions does the hospital have in place to help physicians and people that a patient meets to be able to be more prepared and and uh, um, aware of the options that they have ahead of them? That's a little difficult to answer because in the hospital, as anybody can imagine, 
every day changes. So it's hard to say what possible outcomes could be unless it's down the road. You'll probably end up at rehab. Typically, even that isn't said early on. Um, and we don't even say, you know, you'll probably be discharged tomorrow. Or sometimes that doesn't even follow through. So I think that may be the main reason why people don't technically give a medical plan more than, you know, what's going to happen today. Um, certainly, physicians and nurses don't want to lay out all the possible outcomes that can happen um, because it may not happen, like an X-ray that comes back positive, but we don't know what it is. We wouldn't want to go through, well, is it cancer or is it a pneumonia or is it just because you moved in the X-ray machine. Um, So I think... I think the best case scenario would be to, and, and I hope you're, I hope this happens, I know that this happens, is that physicians will tell you what the medical plan is for the day, and you, and then hopefully be expected that that's going to happen. This procedure is going to happen today, and you're going to get this new medication today. Let's see how it works. Um, but in terms of outlining uh possible outcomes for the whole hospitalization, it's very difficult to do. Can wine be served? Okay. Um, So the question was, uh, can a meal or food be ordered at any time during the day in the hospital? And if possible, can wine be served? Um, So you're right. So there is a uh, a la carte service where you call in and you order your your food, your meals for the upcoming lunch, dinner, breakfast. Um, if that service is not open, typically they have sandwiches. They don't have a whole menu available, but they do have sandwiches and food available 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, usually, no, wine and alcohol is not served unless it's a medical indication to give somebody alcohol for some reason. Yes? Sure, absolutely. Um, so the question is, uh, what is the, is there a policy or is there something in place in terms of uh, making a request to have the attending physician um, uh, complete your procedures or or see even just be seen by the attending physician and not uh, be seen by the rest of the, um, I guess, the teaching service? Uh, absolutely. So. You can make that absolutely make that request, um, and 100% of the time it's followed. If you don't want to be seen by a medical student, you're just tired and you, you don't feel well, um, and you just want to really concentrate with the hospitalist or the attending physician or the attending surgeon, um, or if you are planning on having a procedure done and want really just want the attending physician to do it. There's nothing wrong with with asking specifically that the attending physician uh, complete the procedure. That happens frequently. Uh, that's a great question. Um, so the question was whether there is, are there any efforts being made to unify the electronic medical record across the state or the city or the country would be best. <laughs> um, 
There is, unfortunately, electronic medical records are extremely expensive for any facility to buy um, um, and to implement into their system. So there is one common medical record system um, called EPIC or APEX, which is what UCSF carries. And a lot of the majority of hospitals in California also have it, but the smaller hospitals and primary care physician offices do not have it. Um, Right, yes, exactly. Um, In that case, we would have to do it the old school way and send out for medical records, uh, which actually have which have been easier to do. So in terms of getting consent to get your medical records and have them come in, usually that happens within 24 hours if the request is made. Um, Usually there is uh, actually frequent communication with a primary care physician in terms of questions that either the family or the patient can't answer or questions about medications. So they are often involved Usually, uh, if on, on other occasions, which happen frequently as well, if the reason why you're in the hospital does not have to do with a problem that you've been seen by the primary care doctor, usually they're not contacted. Um, and if it's a, something that's urgent, usually they're not contacted right away. They are contacted in the emergency department on every case that so-and-so, your patient so-and-so, has been admitted from the emergency department. Um, And contact, again, is made when you leave the hospital. Uh, But it's, I guess it's circumstantial in between. Uh, um, So uh, the comment was based around uh, pharmacy medications and... um, how it's uh, viewed upon in the hospital. Um, Medications, there's so much to say about medications. We're all taking, older people, as people get older, you're on medications. If anything, you're on a lot of vitamins, too. Um, A lot to keep track of. Uh, First, remember to bring, if you're going to the emergency department, Bring all the bottles of medications with you or have a family member uh, bring them. Um, Whatever is in the computer system may be outdated or wrong. And the best, the most common medical errors that happen in the hospital have to do with medications. Um, So bring your your medication bottles with you. And oftentimes in the hospital... All those medications that you take at home are reviewed again by the physicians or the care team, so the, which includes also a pharmacist, um, a doctor, a doctorate in pharmacy. So we call them a PharmD who know everything about every medications out there. Um, and based on whether you're on antibiotics or any new medications, we may make changes to your old medications. Um, some of the medications you've been on for years may no longer be very healthy for you now. So those will all be discussed with you, and they, sh- they should be. They won't be taken away without telling you or a family member um, that those medications are going to be changed. And at discharge, you get a whole new list of medications that you'll be going home on, and those need to be cross-matched with 
the ones at home with your bottles of medications um, and the old ones thrown away. So uh, there, there's almost never a time when you're in the hospital and a, med- and a medication is not changed. It's almost always changed. Um, um, comment on uh, how insurance is involved in this hospitalization. Um, so this patient is in their 70s and has Medicare. So there's no question that the hospital stay is covered by Medicare. Um, rehab is covered under Medicare. Um, everybody under their Medicare, most everybody, has about 100 days of rehab days. What does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that you're, you can stay in rehab for 100 days. Um, physical therapists at rehab have to follow the Medicare rules and regulations, which mean that if physical therapy says that you've been getting better each day but met this plateau of not really getting stronger as quickly as we think, Medicare think, says that you're, you're safe to go home and they will stop paying for your rehab days, even though you have up to 100 days. So if you have been there for two weeks and you've plateaued in your therapy, insurance will stop paying, but insurance will then say, we'll pay for outpatient therapy or home therapy, so you'll be discharged home. Um, but in terms of the hospitalization and specialists, procedures, typically all of it is covered under Medicare. I think secondary insurance may come into play with medications if you need certain types of medications um, and another type of care at home, other services like um, a home health aide or caregiver, sometimes your secondary insurance would pay for that. That's a great question. So, if if somebody in the hospital or and if somebody in the hospital is taking a lot of medications, does the pharmacy automatically go through all of them, look for interactions, and then approach the patient uh, to let them know about it? Um, so, yes, every medical team at UCSF has a pharmacy uh, as part of their team, a pharmacist as part of their team. Um, and their medications are reviewed closely, uh, and their recommendations, the pharmacist's recommendations, are then brought to the attention of the attending physician or the medical the medical team, and then they will decide, based on what the interactions are, how dangerous it is, and how important these medications are for the patient, whether to stop it to keep it going, to add another medication. Um, And then sometimes it's not relayed to the patient. Sometimes it is um, if we're not going to do anything about it. It just depends on how heavy that interaction is. But, yes, all medications are reviewed by our pharmacists. Um, Is it communicated to the patient? Uh, most of the time, depend it, depending on whether it's a 
medication that you don't necessarily need. So if we decide, if the medical team decides that you don't need this medication and it won't harm you if we stop the medication, then uh, we'll let you, we will tell you about it. We'll tell you that these two medications, if you take them together, is harmful, so you, we, we need to stop one of these medications, and it'll be communicated to the patient. Um, if there is a mild interaction, but you need both of these medications, and it's important for your heart or for your lungs or for your circulation, even though there's a small chance that it may interact, we don't typically, sometimes it won't be, the patient won't be notified because you need to take them anyway. It's important for your health to take these two medications. Yes. Um, I, pharmacy, it has been looked at, uh, and it continues to be uh, medications and interactions, what we call polypharmacy, people on many, many different medications. It's definitely being reviewed every day by pharmacists, by every, pa- every patient in the hospital. Their medications are being reviewed by pharmacists every day. Um, again, if primary care physicians, you can also bring it up to your primary care doctor saying, listen, I'm taking 20 medications. Can you go through them, each one with me? Let me know which, one do I re- which ones do I really need. And, you know, it's been so long that I've been on some of these medications. Is there a way we can cross-check and see if there are any bad side effects related to any of these? Um, so thanks to you all, and thanks again to Dr. Kim. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.